save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Lately, I've focused on our U.S. wildlife issues, as there are deep parallels here that relate to the conservation models that have been implemented here and elsewhere through large international and widely funded publicly supported conservation organizations. Over the past century, a lot has changed, in many ways for the better. We have better technology, better access to communications, and more people involved with wildlife and animal issues. Yet, in those places where wildlife still thrives in large, wild, and free-ranging populations, we still continue. I'm sorry. Excuse me. We still continue to see those populations decline, with particular species getting closer and closer to extinction. Why, with all the successes we can claim? Why are we still losing our wildlife, particularly our carnivores, both large and small? I hope through today's episode to highlight the importance of our wildlife, particularly our carnivores, to our ecosystems. This is called the wild effect, that the health of wildlife and ecosystems is a clear and present indicator of the health and therefore wealth of our world. With ever-increasing data through scientific research and expertise, recent findings, and a touch of just plain common sense and asking the right questions, we can begin to find common ground between what what may seem to be conflicting messages. Large landscape conservation, the new environmentalism, animal welfare, and animal rights. On the surface, these may seem to all be geared in the same direction, protecting wildlife populations and redefining our human attitudes toward our animal brethren. And as our guest uh, Mark Beckoff recently succinctly put it, we decide who lives, who dies, and why. I hope you'll see that not only does each conversation with my guests stand alone in terms of information and specifics, but that when these concepts are connected, which is what we call conservation, we can see the path we're on, the roads we've taken, and that there have certainly been failures, but also many successes. By gaining knowledge on any given topic, we have the opportunity to incorporate new information into our worldview and our practices, and thus, how our daily actions affect the bigger picture between any given point or place, that how we learn to find solutions and deal with conflicts will affect what happens to everyone, everywhere on earth. The time for outmoded models and thinking that we are alone the most special beings alive on this earth is over. We are but a single strand in the complexities we call life. 
What we know is that we face unprecedented opportunities to reform these models, reorient our thinking and policies, and therefore the cornerstones of our relationship to other living beings. That the time for solutions that engage creativity and a reimagining of how we choose to live our lives, that the choices we make every day affect much more than our single lifespan and much farther than the end of our street. So, as I'm here today live with you, uh, if you'd like to call in or send me an email, please send it to wildize at wildeyes.org or call in to 866-472-5788 and I'll see if I can address your question or comment. As you've noticed by now, I've focused several episodes on carnivores, for as we continue to wipe them out as either vermin or pests, or because they are competition for our resources, we are, in essence, unraveling the very fabric of what makes life happen, the fabric that weaves together together every species on Earth. Carnivores are ecosystem architects, but for that matter, so are we, the two-legged omnivores, but through very clever industry marketing and vested interests, we maintain that we must also be carnivores. We also know through as much research, medical, ethical, and political, that we do not need to eat meat to survive, and that in fact, too much animal-based protein is unhealthy, yet we continue to do so, subsidized agriculture and livestock production to the point of basing our wildlife management and control practices around this strategy. Meat eating is embedded in our culture. Beside the psychological and aesthetics of enjoying being entertained by the natural world and the lives of wildlife, there are very real processes and pressures today to find ways to coexist, not only with each other in regards to race, ethnicity, gender, and culture, but with the other species on Earth, which by default must include our top predators. We are at a point in our historical evolution that we must look beyond the lens of our single species point of view. The problem in living with wildlife, especially our predators, is not about a lack of science, a lack of research or data. It is not about a lack of understanding of the biological effects of, bio- of biodiversity and the loss of biodiversity. We have the facts to understand the critical role carnivores fill. Instead, we find ourselves in that uncomfortable place at the apex of change, that living with wildlife is a societal issue, and that the decisions are those that we will make or break the web of life. No matter where on earth you live, coexisting with wildlife and our carnivores is critical to long-term survival. I hear you. What about the politicians and policy makers? Well, we our societies, ultimately guide these decisions too. I could be wrong there, at least I know it used to. Nowadays, it seems that money and power, connections and corruption are at the heart of our political decisions. But you see, there we go, full circle again. We, the public, the societies that put our politicians into office, either by silence or fear, activism and advocacy, our laws and lawsmakers are ultimately responsible to us, and we will either abscond with our future or secure it. But either way, all of us are a part and parcel of the decision-making process. 
Humans have put themselves in the driver's seat of change. So it is our responsibility to incorporate new knowledge that is presented along the road, the facts and the truth of how life works. If we want to go on living, we have to make some basics, changes. If we want the basics, a planet, food, water, air, and shelter. We have the technology and pretty much the ability to provide global access to it. Simply put, we can no longer afford to be irresponsible. We must take ownership, accountability, and responsibility for our actions. The awareness that we humans are not alone on this planet, that our needs are inextricably linked to the needs of all life, and that our needs do not supersede the needs of all other beings, nor the needs and excesses of the developed industrialized world do not supersede the needs and lack of those who live in less industrialized nations. We all carry the responsibility to care and to learn from our past and from others so as not to repeat mistakes, either through lack of information or just plain stupidity and ego. There is no room for pride, ego, or ignorance. Although we may not be able to repair the damage headed our way, we can certainly take actions to prepare and make changes to our lifestyle. This this connectedness of life, this web, will indeed help us guide our fellows and children, the decision makers of today and tomorrow. It is the societies of people that decide our politics and policies, who who we choose as our leaders and governmental decisions that will take us into the near and far future. This program brings you the experts so we can get a well-rounded idea of just what is happening in the U.S. and elsewhere. And the point I'm hammering home here is that we are killing our ecosystems through misguided, outmoded, and non-science-based policies that continue to presume our carnivores are non-essential. Conservation today has changed dramatically from its humble beginnings almost 100 years ago, and that the models we use today have forgotten many of the basic tenets of where it began, land stewardship. Our politically and financially motivated modern models are not working. When we incorporate stewardship and stakeholders into our everyday activities, then it's almost impossible not to do everything we can to fight to keep our carnivores around. For at heart, they balance the link, the spindle that all life turns upon. It is with this message in mind that I present my various guests and experts, whether you're here in the U.S. or not. What we have learned over the past several episodes about the management practices of our wildlife has become geared toward industries that are either based on eradicating wildlife or industrializing it for monetary gain under the guise of species survival. As we have heard from all several different voices, our U.S. Department of Agriculture's agency, Wildlife Services, is a lesson to all. For those of us here in the U.S., I direct your attention that our government is doing us all a disservice, financially and ecologically, in the form of an agency that is hidden behind vested and private interests that use our public lands and tax dollars to unbalance a delicate system. That an agency that operates through loopholes is ethically and morally questionable and outright practices through illegal methods the dismantling by killing off our carnivores and top predators, 
wolves, cougars, bobcats, foxes, coyotes, and our raptors, and using our tax dollars to do it under the mantle of wildlife control. Our USDA service, Wildlife Services has become guns for hire to private interests and in using our public lands to do so. Wildlife Services in 2010 alone was politically, excuse me, publicly and politically funded to the tune of $126 million to carry out the killing of more than 5 million animals, mammals, and birds. That doesn't include the numbers that were not reported. And many of these species are non-targeted species or non-specific problem animals. Our wildlife, mammals, and birds, species protected by law, but also that many have no special protections, either federally or statewide. And it doesn't stop there. Caught up in all of this are the unreported killings by federal agents, the cover-ups and collateral damage in the so-called accidental killings and injuries, those of our pets and even people, innocent bystanders and biologists alike, out there doing their job or enjoying our open spaces, unknowingly heading right into traps, snares, and poison bombs set out to kill our predators on our public lands. We've learned through research, science, and data that the using the sledgehammer effect, as Ron Thompson, our recent guest, called it, or mowing the lawn, as Brooks Fay of Predator Defense calls it, that model to manage our conflict with predators and animals is, beside being cruel, abusive, and unethical, does not work. It does not solve the conflict or the problem. That the overkill style of management of predators either increases their density in a natural progression of numbers or simply pushes the problem into somebody else's yard. If you go in with the intention of killing off all the coyotes in an area, those that remain will respond <coughs> Excuse me, by the imperative to increase their numbers. When you remove their prey, let's say in the rabbit drives to kill off all the rabbits because they're eating the agriculture, we are in essence forcing the carnivores to turn to other prey sources, which usually tend to be the domesticated livestock that we so enticingly place right in front of them while we, remo while we remove their natural resources. You can probably see where I'm headed here. It's called trophic cascades. We've heard this term from every expert over the past several episodes. Trophic is the term for every food level along the chain. If you remove one level, it's going to cascade like a domino effect throughout the ecosystem, wreaking havoc as we unbalance and manipulate the landscape and the wildlife toward the needs of one species, us. When we remove the large and mesocarnivores along with the smaller prey species as pests to favor landscape toward our large-scale domestic livestock production, animals in large-scale agriculture, we only compound the conflicts between the two, making the problems that much worse. And in the endscape, in, in the end, the landscape play I'm sorry, my tongue is twisted today. And in the end, the landscape pays the price. Exploiting, e.g. large-scale killing, of carnivores en masse is not conflict mitigation. It is slaughter. Mitigation implies the use of a wide variety of solutions and alternatives at our disposal, including non-lethal methods for animal damage control. 
This does not negate the real issue that wildlife preys on domestic livestock. It does. But there are a variety of work, a variety of workable solutions, including compensations and the cost of doing business where wild line, wild carnivores live. Species by species, top up and bottom down, nature will find a way to fill the vacuum left by our actions, and therefore it is up to us to ensure our actions are beneficial. As we are learning, a system out of balance brings dis-ease. Disease manifests widely in all its insidious forms. Think of cancer. It manifests as a loss of diversity and ecosystem collapse for the planet we depend upon for life. The question we want to ask ourselves is how do we want to see the vacuum we create filled? How do we want to heal ourselves and heal our planet? Through the destruction of living systems around us or through finding health via functional biosphere and fertile ground that supports a diverse array of life. I hope you'll tune in to the recent episodes with my guests, uh, Project Coyote, Predator Defense, Carter Niemeyer, and Ron Thompson, to understand that when we put all this information together, when we connect the dots, that it is really impossible not to realize the effects that by eliminating and eradicating any or all competition for the resources we use, and that by killing off everything else that also depends upon these resources, especially and particularly our carnivores, is in reality dismantling the very deep and interconnected systems that we call life. Do we, here and now, want to be the judge and jury signing our death warrants? I think the answer is no. So to move forward on a path of healing will require all of us paying attention to the various aspects and layers that make up a healthy system, be it a community, a neighborhood, a government, or an ecosystem that has a name. It's called Earth. It's the only one we have, folks, so we each hold the responsibility to ensure we do our part and keep it going. So, we'll be right back with more right after the break. Stick with me. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. 
Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. I've had a drink of water and hopefully uh, unstuck my sticky tongue. It's been a while since I've had the opportunity to just talk and go on all by myself without a guest. So bear with me. As I was saying, a well-managed and balanced earth will provide far more than enough resources for all the life that has been created way before us and hopefully along with us. It will continue far into a future, far beyond our imaginings. Our lifespans are minuscule when laid side by side with the span of time since Earth was created. Through our technology, we've been able to trace the history of time and space, geological, climactic shifts, life cycle of stars, and entire universes beyond our small blue ball. We know that there are cycles of climate shifts, glaciers, warmings, and freezings, and extinctions of life before us. But here we are on the cusp of unprecedented and never-before-seen changes in our living memory. Granted, not all are caused directly by us, but certainly there is no doubt that we have had an impressive effect and those effects are cascading and becoming more and more negative. We are living in the era of the Anthropocene and are witnessing and participating in the sixth mass extinction. The problem is, we're so busy consuming, numbing our minds, and fooling ourselves and the planet to death. Watch five minutes of television, paid programming by advertisers, selling products, stuff that we do not need, and you'll know what I mean. This brings me to an article recently received. I'm sorry, my tongue is still sticky. This brings me to an article recently released of new research into the collapse of Easter Island. The accepted view until now was that the Easter Islanders deforested the island to the point of collapse. Anyone who has read the books uh, by the same name, Collapse by Jaron Diamond or Guns, Germs, and Steel, will understand the chain of options a society has to avoid collapse, from the Mayans to the Romans. Use it all and lose it all, or find a balance and sustainability to avoid that, or just ignore the impending collapse and push the problem onto someone else to solve. However, new data proposes a new and even scarier theory. A theory of success. Let me recap it. The current history of the demise of Easter Island and its inhabitants was that it was a forested island, and due to overpopulation and unsustainable land and agricultural practices, was denuded and deforested to ruin by the islanders to the point that they had to leave. 
abandoned the island, and all traces of the people who lived there vanished. Poof, gone. But somehow during this process of collapse, they were so thrilled with themselves that they built these huge, iconic stone statues to celebrate how fantastic their culture was. Well, all that part may be true. But the new archaeological studies and data propose that the islanders did not jump ship, so to speak, and abandon the island and did not vanish, but that they died out. Not because of a lack of resources, but due to our incredible human ability to adapt. And that's what makes this new theory so very scary. What the new research leads to is a new assumption that what happened wasn't that the people cut down all the trees, which resulted in the collapse and abandonment, but that the rats that came with them in the canoes in colonizing the island in the first place also adapted to their new surroundings as well as the humans, and the humans adapted to the rats. Rats eat seeds, roots, and shoots. Being an introduced, invasive, and exotic species, the rats learned to adapt. They ate the trees, the seeds, and the roots, and as the trees disappeared, so did everything that depended upon the ecosystem the trees and forest provided. Rat populations increased, all other resources decreased, thus the islanders, still needing protein, adapted by turning to eating rats, and they survived. Data from the archaeological digs show that the islanders did not die of malnutrition, but more likely of disease. And that's what makes this a frightening theory of success. The point the author of the article made is that for humans to make a shift in our behaviors, we must become alarmed and we must raise the alarm bell. It seems that didn't happen on Easter Island. Instead, they just went along evolving and adapting the adapting themselves to death. The lesson to be gleaned here is that, yes, we are adapting, but what are we adapting to? When or what will it take for us to raise the alarm and ring the bell? Technically speaking, we can live in a bubble. Think of films like Silent Running, Soylent Green, WALL-E, or Gravity. But what kind of existence will that be? Is that really what we want to bequeath to our future? Can you truly imagine your great-great-great-grandchildren living on a denuded Earth, in space, in some post-apocalyptic urban thunderdome or escape from L.A.? An unremarkable, homogenous Earth where everything is the same, with small island pockets of controlled ghost populations of wildlife, living in cages or zoos until the resources for them become so precious for our own survival that we allow or in fact force through our own species-specific selfishness everything else to fade away and die. The loss of diversity and the resultant disease or just keep only for our entertainment and, and as a reminder of what used to be. This may sound like a bad science fiction movie, but we're adapting ourselves to death while blithely destroying the substrate that all life depends upon, a diverse biosphere, one that was here created by nature or by God, whichever you choose to believe, for they are not mutually exclusive. By removing our carnivores and manipulating our earth to suit one life form, us, above all others, we are heading down the path where other life forms can no longer perform their delicate and interconnected functions. 
Just ponder and think for a moment of all the radical changes that would have had to have happened exponentially, along with the actions and activities that would be going on all around us, should we accomplish this. This brings to mind a post I saw the other day on Facebook from the Organizing for Action, OFA. They propose an award to be given to those members of our Congress, or anyone else for that matter, that continues to deny climate change is happening. The award is a sculpture of a rearing unicorn with a plaque underneath that says, For exceptional extremism in ignoring the overwhelming judgment of science, one good fantasy deserves another. Well, we're on our way, folks. We have to modify our behavior. We have to modify our society, and we have to modify our thinking, and we have the science and the knowledge to do so. We have already modified our behavior and cultures and thinking all through history, all to lead us to where we are today, to become an apex, overconsumptive, and blind top predator that is eating itself out of house and home and the home of everything else along with us. But there is an upside to all this doom and gloom. Many of us are changing our behaviors. We are modifying our activities. Yet we are still on the cusp of losing what we have before we even know what it is. What this incredible diversity around us is and how it works. The interconnectedness of what we call ecology, biology, geology, climate, and life. We need everyone to get aboard and be concerned. Ring the alarm bells so that this floating spaceship called Earth can take us and its amazing life forms into the future. And today is a very good time to get started. This reminds me of the Y2K scares at the turn of this century, not so very long ago. National Geographic, when they were putting out good programming, put out a millennium special about time, geological, climactic, and human time. The end point being that we do have all the time in the world to do what we need as long as we start now. We can create astonishing advances that will move humanity and our world into the future, but we need to get our heads out of the sand and get with the program, get away from the mind-numbing stupidity that we are burying ourselves under, this appalling turn we've taken towards false believing that reality TV is reality, and to deal with the challenges we've created. Use our science and our technology and that thing on top of our shoulders, our heads and our very big brains to face the music we have written and change the score. To recover and move ahead is going to take strength and it's going to take all of us a huge turn of the wheel to push us through the paradigm. We've done it before. We can do it again, but it will never be accomplished by being lazy and waiting for someone else to start. Humanity is now driving and shaping our planet. We are the deciders of what lives and what dies and why. This brings to mind the caterpillar and the butterfly. The caterpillar fears death but awakes as the butterfly. My curiosity begs me to ask, does the caterpillar know the butterfly? And does the butterfly remember the caterpillar? This is where the chrysalis of change is transformative. This is where we can begin. We are faced with a choice. Are we going to exploit our wildlife for our own economic private gain and the me generation? Or are we going to decide that other things on earth besides the amount of money in our wallets do have value and that we can coexist? 
with each other and with carnivores. Granted, this may not always be a peaceful coexistence of lions lying down with lambs, but a coexistence in harmony. And by harmony, I refer to a resonance, a balance, a rhythm, finding a center in our core and the core of the earth that created us, and return to the possibilities for life to exist and exceed. I do believe we can do this. We can pull together as long as we raise the alarm, speak up, and speak out. We are at that crisis point now, everywhere you read it in the news. Babies having babies, children killing children, men killing men, humans killing everything else for the thrill of the game, calling it sport. It's going to take time and all of us to rebuild ourselves from the bottom up and the top down, one step and one person at a time. We have the tools, we have the technology, and we are every day gaining new knowledge. We have the way. All we need now is the societal will to give our policies and create that which toward which we know is a whole that must be done. I'm not belittling livestock ranchers and the conflicts that they face with carnivores. We all must make a living and the American diet and meat eating is not going away anytime soon. This is a subject I've covered before and most likely will cover again. But as long as we are eating meat, or a lot of us continue to eat meat, we need to be conscious of who and what we are eating and that we are responsible for taking care of that food. Those animals, from cradle to grave, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to eat something, especially an animal, then I would want to know that I am eating a being that is healthy and was well cared for in life up to and including its death. This is not just for an emotional massage to make me feel better, but because a healthy and well cared for animal or vegetable and fruit, physiologically and biologically, will not add opportunities for disease to run through me, my family, or my my community, or my world. To me, this means a move away from the industrialized complex of concentrated food lots and food production, where pigs, chickens, cows, and even our vegetables and fruits are grown at the expense of our forests, wildlands, and wildlife. It is not a coincidence that disease epidemics are on the rise and that people and even wildlife are becoming resistant to known antibiotics. Their ubiquitous use by food industry is having yet fully unknown effects on our living communities, terrestrial and marine, human and animal, domestic and wild, as disease can rapidly spread worldwide in our modern modern globalized world where just about anywhere or anything is a drive or a flight away from a localized epidemic to a pandemic in the matter of days. Wouldn't you think that alone is a clarion call for localizing and separating our food resources? That growing your own or at least buying local and supporting your own community and land and food provider is a worthy alternative? Let's keep in mind here the carbon and health footprint of the food that you put into your body. One quote I recently heard was that no matter what you eat or drink, you are either feeding disease or fighting it. We know that genetically modified foods change the landscapes and that these sweeping changes affect each of us. That the chemical pesticides and factory wastes we pour into our rivers and streams contaminate our oceans, our groundwater and contaminate us. Whatever we put into our bodies today will have effects far beyond your next trip to the bathroom. It will be passed on through our children's children's children. What we put into our bodies decides what we'll get out of it, 
and that holds true around the world. We need to remember that the American model of consumptive excess is not the model of every culture, and that this model we use today has evolved through industrialization, and that's only been around a few decades. That's how quickly, in hindsight, a paradigm can shift. It seems to happen while you're not really even paying attention, but before you know it, everything has changed. What we're talking about here is called public health, and conservation and public health are linked. Coming up, we'll be having a conversation with Dr. Gladys Kalema Zikusoka, founder of the Ugandi's Conservation Through Public Health Initiative. And let me explain where this is headed. We know that humans and gorillas share a large percentage of characteristics, from DNA to similar social systems and physiology, perhaps even psychology. So what are the connections between the health of animals and humans? The vision of this Ugandan-based organization is to reduce and control the transmission of disease where people, wildlife, and livestock meet to improve African public health, and through this, we can learn to improve our health here in the U.S. And through this, we can help protect wildlife and uh, humans from cross-related illnesses. We can certainly see where this applies to all of us. And this is what I've been talking about. Understanding how disease is transmitted between wildlife and human populations is going to be critical as we move forward. This includes what we've learned from other guests over the past couple of months, such as Colorado Link and the Denver Institute for Human and Animal Connections, that not only in terms of how we treat our food animals, but that animals are a huge part of our social fabric, and both our public health and social frameworks must take our relationship to animals into consideration, and that not only are there links between public health through medicine, but that the links between cruelty and animal abuse are precursors and very good indicators of interpersonal human relationships and tendencies toward violence. There are also lines of connection between wildlife and people as habitat for wildlife continues to decline through civil unrest or warfare. As we discussed, researchers are identifying the zoonotic transmission of human diseases to gorillas and other animal vector species. Vectors are those crossovers that use both human and wild habitats and that also cross over in diseases, causing afflictions ranging from tuberculosis tuberculosis to scabies. Utilizing innovative methodology and multidisciplinary approaches, we will need to focus closely (coughs) on the interdependence between the health of wildlife and the health of people. For in areas where wildlife, people, and livestock intersect, a health issue in one invariably infects the health and survival of the others. So, um, I'd like to know, if hear from you, if you'd like to call in, give us a call at 866-472, I'm sorry, 866-472-5788. Um, I'd love to hear your comments and your questions. I'm sorry, my email is not working today, so give us a call. We're going to take a break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. 
beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with me. We're talking about carnivores and why we need them. I cannot reiterate enough that in ecosystems around the world, the decline of large predators such as lions, dingoes, wolves, otters, bears is changing the face of landscapes from the tropics to the Arctic. In a recent article published by several uh, researchers, colleagues, and even grantees of Wild Eyes in the prestigious journal Science, They state that in an analysis of 31 carnivore species published, uh, in an analysis of 31 carnivore species, science shows for the first time how threats such as habitat loss, persecution by humans, and loss of prey combine to create global hotspots of carnivore decline in more than 75% of the 31 large carnivore species. 17 of those species now occupy less than half of their former ranges. Southeast Asia, Southern Africa, and East Africa and the Amazon are among areas in which multiple large carnivore species are declining. With some exceptions, large carnivores have already been exterminated from much of the developed world, including Western Europe and the eastern United States. Research shows that fewer predators lead to an increase in browsing animals such as deer and elk. More browsing disrupts vegetation, shifts birds and small mammals, and changes other parts of the ecosystem in a widespread cascade of consequences. It is abundantly clear that the research calls for a global, system-wide, and deeper understanding of the impact our large carnivores have on our ecosystems, a view that we can trace back to the work of landmark ecologist Aldo Leopold. The classic concept that predators are harmful and deplete fish and wildlife 
is outdated. We, the public, along with wildlife managers, need to recognize the growing body of evidence of the complex roles that our carnivores play across our ecosystems, both for their social and economic benefits and ours. Further on this note, coming up, we're going to have as a guest Ms. Annette Lanjou of the Arcus Foundation, who works with the Great Ape Summit, and she'll be talking and will be exploring further this interconnectedness between humans and animals, which includes ethics, how we treat others, others, and the value systems that we arbitrarily apply based on species, gender, and race. Central to the, all these an, central and I'm sorry, central to the answers to all these questions are two fundamental questions. Who owns the wildlife and who is paying for their management and conservation? If we can answer these questions, then we at least define the rights of the different sides in the overall arguments of wildlife management and science and policy. Coming up, we'll be discussing this topic with further guests and experts on both the history of wildlife management and on the real value of wildlife. When we consider the public cost of wildlife mismanagement and the consequences of bureaucratic decisions that fail to consider the public good and the in- intrinsic value of wild predators. One last important note, and I quote from an article titled, Who Owns the Wildlife? by cougar biologist John W. Landre, and I quote, Although hunters do pay hundreds of millions of dollars for wildlife management, that money is normally earmarked for specific wildlife, the ones they hunt. Though some money is spent on non-game species, it is done grudgingly or is listed as a side benefit. Most game agencies are not paid to really or care or to manage non-game species. They know where the money comes from and it caters to put hunters to put more game in the bag. He further states, state game commissions are the same in that they know who they are paid by and as the name indicates, only deal with game species. What this does is produce single species management where wildlife in general, the supposed great benefactor of the hunter's largesse, are ignored or worse yet, like predators, treated as vermin to be hunted without control because they interfere with game species. This leaves the other 95% of the population who is really paying the lion's shares for wild habitat with little or no say on how the other 99% of the wildlife is managed. This is wrong and needs to be changed. Landre further states, if game game agencies cannot or will not manage the rest of wildlife resources in a proper manner, then they should only be allowed to manage the ones they are being paid for, game species. This includes predators which they only manage, and that means kill, in response to hunters' cries for more game. All non-game species should be wrenched from the game agency's grasp and given to new standalone state wildlife agencies who cater to the other 95% of the people who really pay the bill for the wildlife habitat. We need a dramatic change in how wildlife is managed in this country and the separation of game management and wildlife management is the first critical step.
Let the game agencies with their millions of hunter dollars manage the deer and the ducks, but let the new wildlife agencies manage the rest of the wildlife the way they should be managed, based on sound ecological science, not hunter demands. It's time we stop sacrificing the many for the few in the wildlife world and start managing our wildlife as an integral part of the ecosystem that they are. So, uh, oops, I lost my place. So, it brings us to big, fierce animals, lions, tigers, and bears, for example, are relatively scarce in nature. That's normal, because if you have too many, they'll eat themselves out of prey. Sound familiar? But top predators are now so rare that many are in danger of disappearing altogether. The research and science is proving that this is creating ripple effects throughout the natural world, a world that we are still trying to figure out. As William Ripple and Robert Best's study of studies of the ecology of five U.S. national parks, including Yellowstone and the reintroduction of wolves, they state, exploring ecology, the interplay of animals and plants in nature is not rocket science. It's harder. We're dealing with the most complicated systems in the universe, and we hardly even know what the moving parts are. When there are fewer carnivores, their prey, the herbivores, multiply. More plant eaters means more plants get eaten, and everything that depends on those plants, from birds to butterflies to forests and rivers, is affected. Streams can actually change course, says Ripple, by the denuding of the plant communities, so we're finding that the predator can actually affect the shape of a stream. We know now that predators can do so much more than just limit herbivore densities. They regulate entire ecosystems by manipulating herbivore and mesopredator densities. Indeed, a quick estimate of the trophic effects reveals massive influences where they are present compared to where they are absent. The roles of carnivores do not end with manipulating the densities of their prey and competitors. They provide a spate of other ecosystem services from the obvious tourism dollars, watching wildlife, to the less well-known and appreciated increase in carbon sequestration by limiting herbivore abundance and thus enhancing plant growth, and the enhancement of nutrient cycling by supporting other wildlife guilds like scavengers. Large carnivores even benefit the industry that persecutes them most, pastoralism, ranching, livestock, by limiting the density of wild herbivores that compete for the same vegetation biomass eaten by the commercial livestock. Carnivores can also potentially soften the impact of climate change on other species by limiting the advance of invasive species and by promoting regeneration of degraded vegetation as it struggles to cope with new extremes. You can find all the articles and related research and the links from today's program on Wild Eyes's Our Wild World and uh, uh, Ellie Weiss's Facebook page and on Twitter. And through previous episodes with our guests at our Wild World homepage on Voice America Variety. The ages old notion that predators should be feared and eliminated is waning, but perhaps not quickly enough before the predators themselves disappear. These studies are making the news across the globe from U.S., Europe, Africa, and Australia. Science over the world has connected the dots through research of environmental effects over ecosystems for the past 50 years. They all say the same thing. Loss of our predators not only created the framework for 
our very existence, their loss will crumble that very same framework. We will have earth, we will have animals, and we will have a lot of people, but it will be very homogenous and anthropogenic. We are in the age of the Anthropocene, the human-defined landscape, and unless we, you, me, your family and children, your neighbors and everyone everywhere across the world on every continent, in every town, in every city, say otherwise. We are surely facing unprecedented losses in the loss of our carnivores. We are in the driver's seat, but it seems the driver isn't listening. So it's time to tune in to the navigators, the architects of our world, wildlife and our apex and keystone members and carnivores who are consistently telling us the directions to the roadmap of how earth works so will we that is the big question that is the big question so coming up uh on the next few episodes we're going to be have several guests that will bring us back to africa as I had mentioned, Conservation Through Public Health from Uganda, and uh, upcoming guest, Dr. Samuel Wasser, who is going to tell us and connect the dots between dogs, DNA, and dung. And this is about the ivory and uh, understanding and mapping the genetics of both elephants and where ivory comes from. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. You'll want to tune in. You'll also want to tune in with our upcoming conversation with Dr. Gladys Zikusoka from Uganda and uh, Ms. Annette Lanjou. Coming up over the next couple of weeks, we're going to catch up with Tigers for Tigers in their recent trip to India and the students and their first look at a wild tiger and the impressions that it made on them. So further from there, we're going to kind of wing it. I'm going to be uh, out of town for a little while, so we'll be doing some pre-recorded sessions, but I'll probably check in from wherever I am in our wild world. So until next time, I'd like you to take a moment, ponder what we've talked about. Please tune in and listen to previous episodes with my guests, uh, Project Coyote with Camilla Fox and Dr. Robert Crabtree, uh, Predator Defense and Brooks Fay uh, with an expose on wildlife services, its cruel, unethical, and terrible and outmoded practices. And you can check into Facebook, go online, and there are many petitions out there to stop to request Congress to refund or close down wildlife services. If we could turn that $126 million per year and the loss of 5 million mammals per year toward conservation and saving our carnivores, imagine the difference in the world we could have. So, until next time, this is Our Wild World, and you're listening to Ellie Weiss. Go out, step into the world, Hug a tree, stand on the grass, and think about what you can do to make a difference. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 